Good morrow to you all. You have fallen on bad times. Brought to you by Royal Holloway's Shakespeare Society. You join me, Cassie Dixon. And me, Jack Hardman, as we bear some bardy truths. Hello everyone and welcome back to Bard Times. This is part two of Filming the Bard and I am pleased to welcome back both Eleanor Rutter and Connor McLennan. So without further ado, let's crack on. In the last episode, we spoke about the reception of Shakespearean film in schools and how students might benefit from being shown a variety of adaptations. So I wanted to begin by asking what your personal favourite imaginative reworkings of Shakespeare are. Um, I personally love Scotland PA, which is what is it's Macbeth, but set in 1970s America. And Macbeth works at like a fast food restaurant. Um, and Christopher Walken is, I think, is he Macduff? Um, and he's an FBI agent who comes in to investigate why all these why all these people are dying in this fast food restaurant. And it's just, it's so fun and playful. And it takes something that's really tragic and just completely flips the tone. Um, and it just, I had no expectations going into it and it just brought me so much joy because I was like this is insane but it works so well that's the thing I wasn't expecting it to work so I was like I'll give it a go I'll see what happens but it did like it just came it was such a left field idea and it did just work and I think sometimes you get really good adaptations which you look at and think this should not work but they do and it's just it was just so much fun to watch. I actually still to this day love Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. So for me, when the characters aren't talking, there's something incredible about the film. In a way, like it's so easy, um, I find with a lot of adaptations, Romeo and Juliet, to, to feel the shallowness of the characters in some ways. Whereas in this adaptation, like I do think that um, in the non-dialogue sections of the, the the film where there's the shared eye contact and there, there's the rumination and the kind of the connections between characters that aren't verbal, they do an incredible job of actually selling their relationship with each other, but also their relationships with the other characters, with the nurse, with Mercutio. Um, and I do think in the same way that, that Eleanor was um, talking about, um, there's something really cool, and they do this as well as in Scotland, PA, in Romeo, in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, they also tap into um, comedy in unexpected places, and there are some really comic moments that that it's not how Shakespeare would have done it originally, but they tap into an energy and a comedy that just draws you in, and it makes you even. It's one of those films that I think a lot of people who dislike it as a Shakespeare adaptation can still have a huge amount of fun watching it. To be fair, I I do really like it, but I, I have a soft spot for Baz Luhrmann. Um, I uh, <laughs> I think it I think it is a great adaptation in what it can do, and and how it's how it's brought Shakespeare to modern day. Eleanor, I know you you will probably disagree with what we're saying here, but <laughs> you know, to each their own, I guess. Um. I just I don't even know what it is. I think my big thing about Romeo and Juliet in general and I think what a lot of adaptations misinterpret in my view is the fact that it's about love Mm. I don't think that's the point of Romeo and Juliet I think it's more about the conflict and the violence and the misunderstanding and all these other complex things Um, and I think 
a lot of people just see it as this great romance story, which um, kind of like we said earlier, if that's the as- the element of it you want to take, you want to run with, absolutely fine. But it's the fact that every adaptation takes that element and runs with it. And I'd love to see an adaptation that wasn't so much about them, but is more about the conflict between the two houses or um, the violence between the two houses or just something else, another aspect of it. I agree. Um, so other classic... I say classic. Other creative reimaginings of Shakespeare, Warm Bodies, My, My Own Private Idaho, Big Business, Forbidden Planet, all of these films, even Romeo and Juliet. I can't believe I just mentioned it on this podcast. It's in. We got it in. <laughs> oh. um, do you think that those imaginative reworkings are always um, good for adaptations or do you think there's such a thing as taking it too far? Um, I think always is a very difficult kind of uh, benchmark to go against. But one thing I would say about kind of adaptation in general is that a lot, I think there's a quite an elitist perspective on it where people are like, oh, well, it doesn't follow the plot exactly and therefore it's not good enough. And I think that misses the point of adaptation. The point is just to take something you love and be like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we put it here instead? and see what would happen and see how that changes it and it's like it's an experiment and it's just something fun and I think adaptation is so fun and enjoyable and I think a lot of people miss that because they sit there and compare it to the script or to a different adaptation and they're like oh well it wasn't as good as this or it didn't focus on that and therefore it's not as valid and I think validity is a really big thing I think a lot of people are like well it's based around gnomes and therefore that doesn't make it a valid interpretation of Romeo and Juliet and I think that's a a bad way of thinking about it I think it's like okay that's a different way of interpreting the text that may speak to other people um, and be more enjoyable for a different audience and I think adaptation is a really good way of reaching different audiences because I know loads of people that would not sit there and watch Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet or Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet but they will sit there and watch Romeo and Juliet and it's a way for them to engage with the text in a way that they find enjoyable. Yeah, I agree with that. I completely agree. Um, although I would say, I think it's down to, like you say, personal taste. Um, and as an example of too far for my personal taste, I am going to bring up the dreaded um, Prospero's books, <laughs> which is an, it's an, it's an adaptation from, from the, I think it was the nineties. Um, and it's, kind of part film, part performance art, part theatre, part ballet, part art installation. And it was just, it it was so intellectualised um, and so, I would say, confused in its presentation that I, I think it failed to achieve what it was trying to achieve because it was just I illegible. I, I don't think there's any one particular way to interpret Shakespearean text. And I think it, it is very elitist to think that way. Um, just because there is so much that you can gain and interpret and develop and uncover in in queered elements of of the texts and productions, um, one section of Shakespearean film I find particularly interesting is how um, historical monarchs of Shakespeare have been translated onto the screen. Um, so uh, Julie Tamer's Titus, for example, Justin Curzel's Macbeth, and Richard Longcrane's Richard III. Um, I think they do a really interesting job. Um, three very completely different films, but 
I think they do a fantastic job at diving into um, Shakespearean monarch psyches. Um, so wh what do you think cinema can do to the exploration of those psyches? Um, the one that uh, comes to my mind is um, the way that Hal is portrayed in Full Stuff or Chimes at Midnight. The film itself um, doesn't really focus on Hal. It's very much mm. an Orson Welles vanity project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, bits, the bit that I found the most interesting was the scene between Hal and his father. Um, and they're in this massive um throne room it's looks really cold it's very bleak and there's just this distance between the two of them and i thought it was so interesting the kind of the way they portrayed the father-son relationship in terms of the monarchy and kind of they are so far apart and so distant from each other um because of the way they've had to be raised because they're supposed to go on to be the leader of the country there's just so much distance between them and i don't think that would have worked the same way on stage because there was just something about the scale and the size of that shot and because you know stage is only so big so you can be standing at the, the other end but you're still not that far apart yeah I, I absolutely agree and i think there's something to be said in the cinematic techniques that filmmakers use for example um richard iii in that film ian mckellen is shown consistently breaking the fourth wall and speaking directly to the audience which is quite uncommon in in film it, it is it is seen there's quite an increase in in the use of breaking the fourth wall especially in tv but i just find it really interesting because it, it is a carryover from not just shakespearean theatrical performance but theatrical performance in general so what do you think about the breaking of the fourth wall and and other theatrical techniques that that have been carried over to the screen yeah i always i always find it interesting just in general, like whether or not they decide to do that, because if you look at Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado, I don't think they use it there when they mm. could, when they have their monologues. They, it's very much like an internal thing. Whereas if you look at the BBC King Lear from, I think it was about two years ago with uh, Anthony Hopkins, Jim Carter, Florence Pugh, Emma Thompson, all these people, they did break the fourth wall. And there's a bit where Andrew Scott, who's playing... Um, Edgar is running through the forest and he's talking to the camera and he's delivering his monologue to the camera and I just wasn't expecting it um, and I actually found that quite jarring um, because it was very everything else about it was very felt very fluid and then suddenly he was talking to the camera and I was like oh hello you're talking <laughs> to me um, so I think sometimes I find it quite jolting but in the in the Ian McKellen one that you just mentioned, because I think he starts off like almost immediately, he's talking to the camera. It sets the tone for the film, um, and you're like, oh, okay, this is what I can expect. But I think sometimes it does feel a bit like it comes out of nowhere. I think it's a really interesting technique that I think you're right has picked up a lot more traction in the last twenty years, um, and I think. In the example of Richard, that Richard III adaptation, yeah. the characters are aware that he's talking to somebody, but they don't see us. So the sense that there's a shared space between us and the character of Richard, um, it's difficult. It's got to be used well. But I really think can be useful in, in getting uh, the audience into that shared mind space of a character, um, which can really help in the delivery of monologue and soliloquy, because I think monologue and soliloquy are amongst the hardest things to do in Shakespeare on film. Definitely. A lot of the time. Um, whereas in film, 
it, you've got to push that extra mile to make it kind of gel stylistically with the medium, I think. I think also in theatre, they're not talking to no one, they are talking to the audience. Because I think about how difficult it must be, because you don't get any response from a camera. When you're talking to the audience, like that, you can see the responses that people are giving you, but you know the camera is just this cold, unfeeling piece of machinery that doesn't give you any indication of anything. I, I agree with that. Um, as well as uh, cinematic techniques, I think a lot can be said about the genre in which is used to convey these these themes and um, inner workings of these characters. And I think there's something very interesting about the relationship between Shakespearean monarchs on screens and dystopias, which you wouldn't necessarily think of initially, especially in a theatrical sense, but I, I've seen it quite a lot in, in cinema and I was wondering what your um, what your opinions on that were. I, I, I find dystopia as kind of a genre very interesting anyway um, and I think it interlink, interlocks with monarchy really interestingly because it is about when society has been destroyed someone has to take power so there has to be someone in charge for society to rebuild and I mm. think that's why there are so many ad adaptations of the plays that revolve around monarchs that are set in dystopic futures because they do, I think, inherently examine social powers and political positions and kind of the way that hierarchies are built and maintained um, and destroyed. And when you have a setting like a dystopia where there is no social structure, everything's kind of gone and you have to build from the beginning up, putting a monarch there and being like, okay, let's see how this works is just another really interesting way of looking at it. Mm. No, I completely agree with that. And I think in presenting a setting in which our social structures have broken down and not just the social structures of our modern society, but also their origins in the historical social structures that Shakespeare was setting his productions in. Um, it creates an opportunity to kind of really drill down into more of the core human experience and how that core human experience gives rise to those social structures. Yeah, I, I think... The setting, depending on what it is, can draw out so much from the original text. But to what extent do you think um, an altered cinematic setting may affect the original meaning of the text? I think it depends upon how you, where you sit in the debate on interpretation in Shakespeare. Because I think there are people who, for whom there is a very definitive interpretation of the text. And that interpretation of the text is kind of set in stone. And if you mess with it or, or there are elements of it that don't quite translate through, um, that adaptation is, is a failure. Mm. Um, whereas I think if you're doing a theatrical adaptation that's three and a half hours long, yes, like there's time for it. But if you're doing a two hour, 20 minute film, um, you have to focus down, you have to cut things. And I think that it's okay in those instances to cut things away that are just not necessary to your interpretation of the text. Um, it's, I'm always saying this. Shakespeare is dead. He's been dead for 400 years. He's not going to rise out of his grave in fury <laughs> if you change something or don't focus on every little aspect of his text. Um, he's He's gone. His text is left to us and we can do with it what we like. Not everybody will like it, but you have the right to do it. So 
nobody can tell you not to if that makes sense yeah i agree and and as you said there are so many different adaptations out there already that that focus on different aspects we've we've spoken about film but i just want to quickly touch on tv adaptations not direct adaptations like what the hollow crown does but ones that take shakespeare as a figure as a writer and expand on them in different genres in order to reach different audiences tv series like upstart crow or horrible histories what do you think that they add to the uh, allure of Shakespeare that you might not um, get in the classroom, for example? It humanises him um, in a way that I think there are so many writers and authors and playwrights um, and creators who feel so much larger than life. They're so mythologised in many ways. Um, there's so much material that, that, that goes towards trying to humanise Shakespeare as a person and as a character. But as a creator, um, they very much have helped to shape my perception of Shakespeare, the man, and how he relates to Shakespeare, the playwright, if that makes sense. I, I love that idea. I really do think these these shows do a great job in humanising him as a character, as a figure in history. And um, what uh, Matthew Bainton in, in Bill and Horrible Histories, I think, does so well is he accesses that comedic element of Shakespeare in a style that reaches kids and and teenagers and adult you know and anybody and it's it's fun it makes Shakespeare fun and upstart crow again I think I think it does a great job with focusing on the humor and and not taking itself seriously and I think with those misconceptions that some people have of Shakespeare they think, oh, it's it's great theatre, it's very serious, when it really isn't. I mean, it can be, but there is so much more to it than that, I think. So what these shows do is look at Shakespeare from a different angle and present that in a different light. And um, I think more recent adaptations, and I say adaptations loosely, of, um, of his plays like the 2018 version of Ophelia or David Michaud's uh, The King, what do you think they, they bring to the table in terms of Shakespeare? Because they're not straight up adaptations. Um, they do look at certain themes and aspects and characters of the original text and then transpose them into um, a completely different light that we haven't really seen before. So what do you think those films in particular do? Can we can we talk spoilers? Yes. Here? Yeah, yeah. Spoilers. Yeah, go. Ah, good. So I love what they do with the character of Falstaff in The King. Yeah. If you know, um, it's obviously, it, I still marvel at how they're able to condense Henry IV parts one and two into about 25 minutes. Um, but if you know um, Henry IV part one and two and then Henry V, you know that Falstaff goes off on some merry adventures, messes around loads and then dies, basically. Um, he's, we're told that he dies at the start of Henry V. Instead, what they do with the, the king they have it be that Hal reaches back out to Falstaff, brings Falstaff back into his inner circle, and there's almost a redemption of Falstaff as a character. And he actually dies on the field of Agincourt. And that, to me, speaks not only to... It, it raises a lot of questions around um, Shakespeare as, as a historian, because a lot of our perceptions of English history, many people's perceptions of English history, are formed by Shakespeare's plays. And certainly people's were back in, in Shakespeare's day, when actually um, he, had as, he was as much a historian as 
like the makers of the crown <laughs> and we know how controversial that is um so i think the fact that they themselves play around with our expectations of oh this isn't how history went this isn't what happened well neither is shakespeare's history but we don't question that so i think there's an interesting element there yeah i think um a good way of thinking about it is reimaginings um and it's a really good way um for people who are maybe just starting out to kind of take characters they already know really well and try something new with them it's a really good way to learn because like you can see in Shakespeare's work his progression as a writer and I think from a creative perspective it's a good way for someone to start and take characters that are already well known see what they can do with them and then use that as a point of progression um, and I think it's also just a way of looking at characters that are really interesting but maybe don't get that yeah. much stage screen time in the actual text because they're not the main characters. So I can talk about Ophelia for years because I think <laughs> that film is amazing. Um, and it does, like, Ophelia in the text, she's only in it for, what, three scenes and then she dies? It's something like that. She's mm. hardly ever in it, but her impact on the play is huge. I think it's just such a good way of exploring the way she interacts with the characters and kind of why she leaves such a big impact with within the play. I absolutely agree with that. Um, so what do you think we'll be seeing in the future for cinematic adaptations of Shakespeare? Do you think we'll be seeing more films like Ophelia where we we feature social issues around certain characters more or do you think um, we'll be seeing more straight to screen adaptations? Um, I personally think there's a, re a real kind of call at the moment for um, female-driven pieces of work. Um, and especially Shakespeare actually wrote some really interesting female characters. He did indeed. I think people have a real big misconception about Desdemona. If you think about the very first thing she does in the play is defy her father's orders and marry someone of a lower social status. That mm. In, back then would have been huge. I think she's an incredible character that people just write off and I'd love to see a version of Othello from her point of view. I think that would be really interesting. Um, so I think there's definitely kind of a market at the moment and a, I do think there is a want from audiences to see more female-driven pieces of work. I completely agree um, and I would add on to that that I think that that's a part of um, a real shift now in the adaptation of Shakespeare, which goes away from reproduction and I think is really pushing now into the realm of reimagining and reevaluation. And that's not just in terms of um, having female creatives and female um, actors, for example, being able to really re-examine and re-address the way that female characters are presented in the plays. Um, I think it goes for other instances as well. I think, for example, if you look at a character like Malvolio in Twelfth Night, we find, yeah, we find a lot of comedy in how that character's mistreated. This is just a thought I had the other day, but um, you could do a production of that where Malvolio is, for example, on the spectrum of autism or is neurodivergent in some way. And that recontextualizes how that character is treated by society, what they have to overcome, and then the torture that they go through in a very different way. Like that's a very specific example, but I think that there's a real appetite for those kind of adaptations to redress a lot of the underrepresentation of different groups across history and within Shakespeare's work. 
I agree. I think film is a fantastic medium that um that should be used more creatively, I think, in terms of Shakespeare. And I'm really excited to see what future filmmakers and theatrical makers, for that matter, um, come up with when producing Shakespeare. Um, but I think we'll we'll leave it there for today. And I just want to say a big thank you so much to the both of you for coming on. It's been so enlightening and so fun. Thank you for thank having Thank you very us. much for having us yeah. on, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And a big thank you also to those of you at home who have tuned in. This has been Cassie Dixon. Stay safe. And in the words of the Bard himself, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt.